I want to just bring you up to speed. If you weren't here last week, uh, we ended with this question right here, um, which is, what if just offshore from where you are, joy is waiting for you? Um, and as we sort of move forward in chapter one here of Philippians, um, I want to sort of pick up off of that. We've been thinking about um, in this series that the idea that if happiness it's sort of how we experience the goodness of the ocean from the shores. Um, it would appear that uh, the ocean, there's a lot of ocean, and then there's not much ocean. It sort of comes and goes, and that those things are um, really dependent on our circumstances as to whether things are happening good in our life or things aren't happening. But that joy is the ocean itself. So if happiness is sort of what we experience from the shoreline, um, joy is the ocean itself. It's big, it's vast, it's limitless, um, and it is able to sustain us and even swallow us whole. So that's kind of the thought behind uh, the different, different thought behind um, happiness and joy. And here's my question. Um, I think on the one hand, we can believe this and say we believe this and actually know in our mind that this is true that joy is deeper than our happiness, that joy is independent of our circumstances, and yet we cannot experience joy um, like, like that should indicate. So in other words, if what we say is true about joy, why aren't we experiencing it right now? Why aren't we walking in it right now? And what needs to change to sort of get us there? I want you to think about a time, maybe you've uh, been at the end of a movie, and the movie ends, and you look around, and you realize people are crying, and you're not. And you're like, what happened? Like, why is everyone so moved by this? Or maybe it gets done, we're in a movie theater, and people start clapping, or high-fiving each other. And so maybe you've been at the end of a movie before, and you're just not reacting and responding the way everyone else around you um, does. Now, maybe this happens on a regular basis, and you're just kind of clueless. It's hard for you to stain and sort of follow the storyline. Maybe you weren't paying attention, but perhaps that happened because you came in late to the movie. Anyone join a movie late before? Okay. Here's the annoying thing about that for the rest of us who were on time. You are asking us all the time questions, right? Questions like, tell me one. What happened? Who's he? Why is she crying? Why is that person holding a knife? Whatever the thing is, you're asking us questions, and what are we doing, those of us who are on time? What are we doing to you? That's it. We're shushing you. Shh. Stop. Like, as you start to try to explain it, it's just really challenging. Um, we have this going all the time in our house. We have lots of shushing because there's funny little snide comments being made. There's the peanut gallery over here. There's questions happening over here and all sorts of fun things. To appreciate the ending of most movies, you have to go back to the beginning. You have to sort of track with what's going before you understand the full impact of why this is such an emotional ending and people are crying or such an exciting ending and, and people are high-fiving. They are physically responding to what they are seeing. It's basically the same with Philippians. So we're going we're gonna to read this passage uh, in, in Philippians 1 and to see where all of this joy and all of this gushing and deep affection come from, you have to go back to the beginning. So here's what I want you to do this morning. You're going to be both in Philippians 1 and in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 is where the book of Philippians or the church of, of Philippi got started. It talks all about it. And so it's going to actually give us some uh, indication. The start of this 
church shows us why all of this joy is here. Here's why it's important. It's important because it clues us into why Paul can be joyful in prison. Why do we care if a man was joyful in prison a long, long, long time ago? Here's why. Because the same joy that was in Paul, that was actually springing forth from Paul, is available to us as Christians today. Love the song we just sang, Same God. Some of you are on a reading plan, and my son Eli this morning read from Exodus 2 about Moses. And I read the other day about Joseph. And so we're, we're reading these stories in the Old Testament. And to read these stories and realize that the message of that song is that God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So these stories aren't just here to entertain, they are here to instruct. They're actually stories to grab hold of and say, if Paul could be happy in prison, maybe I could be happy and joyful in blank, whatever it is for you. So that's why we're looking at this, that's why this matters to us, and maybe, just maybe, joy is closer than I feel like it is today. Maybe joy is closer than I realize today. Philippians 1, starting in verse 3, I'm just going to read 3 all the way through 11 because it's kind of one continuous thought, and it says this. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse 8. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So just hearing that read through, don't you hear joy language and not just happiness language? And the reason I say it's joy language, not just happiness language, is because there is a depth and a certainty of what he's talking about and writing about and looking ahead to that can't be touched by your circumstances. They can't be touched on what went on this last week. They can't be touched by what may go on this week that is or is not in your control. The gift of joy is already present. That's a really powerful truth to hold on to. God today, right now, where I'm sitting, the gift of joy is present to me. So help us to step in and enter in. Um, joy is something we uh, is joy is not something we work for, but something we walk in. I'm going to give you four uh, sort of specific ways this is true this morning from the text. But joy is not something we work for, but it is something that we walk in. And here's the reason for that. Joy comes freely to us, but it doesn't come naturally to us. Some of you are more uh, just happy by nature. You are the glass is half full kind of person. I grew up with a dad like that. I tend to be that way. But joy is something that doesn't come natural to anyone. 
It's something that we participate in with God. It comes freely but not naturally. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you four ways from this paragraph sort of to discover what are the paths that I walk in. It's not something I work for. It's gifted to me. But how do I walk in joy? Here's the first one. Oceans of joy are found in prayer. So if you're taking notes, write down the word prayer. And by the way, I don't often use this technique. Um, preachers love to use this, but they're all going to start with P today. It just sort of worked out that way. So um, as you read this passage, wouldn't you love to pray the way Paul prays? When I read prayers in the Bible, whether it's Mary um, after she realizes she's going to give birth to the Savior and, and carry God in her womb, or whether it's Paul here, I just would love to pray the way that he does. Look at these words. Imagine praying all your remembrance of them, always in every prayer for all of them, there's joy in his prayer for them. I mean, these are really, really big words that, that if you circle and just sort of pair them together, let me say this, whether you're at this church or you leave this church one day and move somewhere else and go to another church, you want to be prayed for as a congregant, as a member of a church. You want to be prayed for by church leadership the way Paul is praying for these Christians at Philippi. Doesn't that sound amazing? Like, don't you want your leaders praying for you this way? And let me just say as a pastor, I want to be and I ought to be praying for the congregation that I serve with this kind of language. And so this is, a, this is a bar to sort of reach for and look for and say, are my church leaders praying for me in this way? Pastor, am I praying for uh, our, our, our congregation in this way? I mean, listen to the affection that's here. Listen to the belief that is in this prayer. Um, of course we want this, but how do we get this? We have this theme this year for our community groups, which is the idea of being devoted to some specific things. And this tagline is really important, and we just keep coming back to it, which is the, the whole idea of um, choosing real over ideal. So one of the ways that I, as a pastor of a congregation, um, that I can walk in this and cooperate with this, is to choose to pray for real people instead of some ideal church that I could pastor. For people attending a church and a part of a church and membership in a church, one of the things you can do is instead of um, sort of thinking about the ideal church leader, the ideal preacher that would preach to you, you could pray for uh, real church leaders, real preachers that are in front of you. All uh, Christians are tempted to sort of dream and talk and blog and write about the ideal and not participate in what's really right in front of them. Would you agree that relationships are hard? Anyone else? Is that just me? Okay, I have one in the back nodding furiously. But relationships are hard. I know you. It's okay to say that. We can be honest. Relationships are hard, and no pastor is immune from wanting to trade in certain members sometimes for other church members. Okay? Um, and I was actually re uh, rebuked on this this week. Let me just show you a text thread. This is a text thread to our uh, community group that meets on Wednesday night. Um, and uh, we had received a, a message from Elizabeth uh, that she wasn't going to make it. This green is my reply. Um, so I had just said, um, oh, no, get better Gouldings. And James Peary had the wisdom and courage and grace to confront me um, and say, the best Gouldings are the ones we have. There is none better. So I was trying to trade in the Gouldings that we had for some better ones. 
And I humbly received the rebuke Monday morning from James. So James, are you in here? James, thank you very much for, for confronting me. I repented of that. And I chose real Goldings over sort of the ideal Goldings that were in my head. When you read this letter, you think to yourself, man, Paul wouldn't trade the real Philippians for any other Philippians. He just says, like, it's right for me to feel this way. It's deep affection that I have for this. I yearn for you. And it's not unique to the Philippians. Philippians may be a church that's sort of easier to love. He pastored many churches. And there were other places that were hard to visit and hard to love in some ways. And yet we see the same thing, how he longs to visit them, how he's praying and and wishing in God that, that he's going to be able to get to be with them. So start or continue to pray for the Christians in your life. If they aren't yet, they'll actually become dear to you in prayer. Some of you know this. You've begun to pray for people, and uh, they weren't very dear to you in, in, in the first moment. In fact, they may have been an enemy or someone countering you. And God called you to just say, would you just pray for this person? And as you pray for people, as you pray the things we see in Philippians over other people, they actually become dear to you. And so lukewarm relationships in the Christian church can actually grow and warm up. Notice that he prays for them all. Uh, There are people in this room that you click with, and there are people in this room that you don't click with, and he prays for them all. That's really, really instructive for us. He prays for them as saints. If you see in this passage, there's two times where he's looking ahead to the day of the Lord. He has this forward-looking view of them, and no doubt they weren't always acting like saints. In fact, we know that because there's instruction and rebuke in this letter towards this church. So he's not dealing with a perfect church. There is no such thing. But he is praying for them, not with a list of complaints, but this list of things of all the things they are becoming. Isn't it great to have people in your life who see you the way God sees you? How does God see you? God sees you through the lens of Jesus Christ. God sees you in the lens of what he's doing, this work he's completing. He says, I already know what you're going to end up as. I know all the things it's going to take to get you there, but I see you as that already. And here's a pastor praying for his church with eyes that see like the father of what they are becoming. They are right now saints and they're growing in their saintliness where God's going to be doing that work in them. What an amazing way to pray for people, celebrating and joy-filled. I look at this passage and it just calls out this question, what if prayer was more delight than duty? I think some of us feel guilty about our prayer life. Some of us resist praying because we feel like it's a chore. We all know we're supposed to pray. We all know we're supposed to probably pray more. And so it just feels like this spiritual to-do list. And so oftentimes we hang back from it. What if wherever you were at any time, you could turn your praise to God and celebrate with joy? You know part of how you do that? We've already sung this. We look back on the goodness of God. Everyone take a deep breath. I do this a lot in preaching. I'm not sure why, but do it. Take a deep breath and let it out. Last time I told you, you just breathed in particles of people around you, which is true. But that's not the point this time. The point this time is you have breath in your lungs. We just saying that you have life in your bones. So the very fact that we are here and alive and upright is cause for deep joy 
God, you've sustained us another day. You've gifted us another day. Jesus said, ask, seek, and knock. What if in prayer we just went ahead and asked? Not what we think God wants to say, not filtered, but just to ask. And just say, God, is, is there any way this could happen? Even if our faith feels mustard seed or less, we don't worry about that. We come to God with our prayer. Even if later on we might discover, wow, my early prayers, my prayers last week were theologically inaccurate. Who cares? Come childlike and ask. What if we seek and just say, God, this kind of joy, like walking through life this way, praying for other people this way, being so others focused, I want that. I want to walk in that path. Can you help me find it? I'm looking. I'm around. And what if we just knocked? What if over and over we did what Jesus said and we annoy God with our knocking? We just keep coming back and asking over and over, God, this still isn't resolved. I still don't have this. I still need justice in this. I still have this need. I know that you know it, but I'm going to knock and ask anyway. This is the invitation of prayer that we have. Just this ongoing conversation, and there's joy to be found here. All right, we're going to stop and do something really wise for Christians, and that is to memorize Scripture. You ready? All right, stretch a little bit. Limber up. Get ready. Here we go. We are going to memorize a verse right now. Um, say this word with me. Pray, Pray. Without, without ceasing. ceasing. Congratulations. You just did it. You did it. You memorized a verse. Pray without ceasing. Anyone know the reference? First Thessalonians. That's right. 5.17. First Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. Now, jump back to what I said before. Prayer feels like a spiritual to-do sometimes. Often, maybe. Maybe you've been led in sort of duty prayer, dutiful prayer. There's a time for that, no question. Spiritual practices and disciplines, you get up and you do it. You're like, I know this is good for me. God has it for me. But what if it tilted more towards delight than duty? What if God's actually gifting us something and saying, pray without ceasing. Keep coming to me. Talk to me all the time. You don't need to be in a closet. You don't need to fold your hands. You don't need to close your eyes. Just pray without ceasing. Now, here's what's really cool about 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Let me give you one more verse to memorize. You ready? Rejoice. Always. Give yourselves a hand. You just memorized two verses. Two verses in a couple of moments. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. I love that joy and prayer are paired together. Friends, there is joy in prayer waiting for you right here. Answer me. Does your situation right now need to change for you to pray, yes or no? No. All the bills that you have coming up this next week, do they need to be paid for and you know where, where the money's coming from to be able to pray and rejoice? Say no. It's true. The health thing you got last week, the health thing you got last year that you're still wrestling with, the relationship thing that you're questioning, the conversation that you're dreading on Tuesday at work, all of that remains. And yet we can rejoice always and pray without ceasing. And friends, there is joy to take hold of. There's joy to sort of enter into uh, simply by prayer. Number two, write this down. Oceans of joy are found in gospel partnerships. Now, some of you keep track of time and whatnot. Let me just let you off the hook. This second point is going to be the bulk of the sermon. Okay, so as we go along, don't be like, Dave, you still have two more points. It's okay. 
It's okay. I'm managing the time. We'll get to three and four very quickly at the end. Gospel partnerships is going to be a focus. Look at verse four. He says, making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, again, remember that genre is important in the Bible. Do you read the Bible literally? You ought to say absolutely according to its genre. You walk into a library or a Barnes and Nobles. There's still Barnes and Nobles, but it's going away. You walk into a library or Barnes and Nobles, you know where you are, what section you are in the library, and it helps you interpret and understand what the author's intent was. So the genre of this book, Philippians, in the Bible is personal letter. It is a letter from an actual human being to other actual human beings, this church at Philippi. So remembering that is going to help us interpret it. And so setting is vital and important. A couple of quick things about Philippi. Philippi is an actual place. It was a Roman outpost. So if you grew up at Rome and that was your home and you had traveled around and gotten to Philippi, you would see enough Rome and Philippi that you'd sort of feel at home. You're like, oh, wow, this reminds me so much of Rome. And that was done on purpose. So in its architecture and sort of the flow, its government and sort of who was there and how it looked and felt, it was sort of this outpost that was a little mini Rome that was going on. It was a really important city. It was a thriving city. But to really get to understand Philippi or, or Philippians, um, it's not just important to understand the place. In fact, far less important is to do a deep dive on the place Philippi. Far more important is to understand the people at this church. So to understand all this warmth that's coming out in this letter, you have to go back to the beginning. The Philippian church was born, catch this, out of closed doors and confusion. This church began with closed doors and confusion. But that's actually telling the story from the human's standpoint. The author of the church at Philippi, and really the author of Philippians, God, there were no closed doors and there wasn't confusion going on. So from our vantage point, as we look at how Philippi got started, it looks confusing. Here's the point. Just because something doesn't make sense to us doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't make sense. There's tons of things right now that don't make sense to you. And that's part of living constrained by one day at a time and the very limited knowledge that we have. Maybe 2023 had a lot of closed doors and confusion for you. Don't give up. See with eyes of faith. In fact, look out, because maybe 2024 is going to be this sort of breakthrough, that all these things that were closed doors and confusing to you last year, as you keep walking along, as you ask, seek, and knock, God's going to throw things open. You go, wow, I could have never predicted back in June of 2023 that this is what you were doing. Thank you, God. Praise God for that. To catch the drift of this letter, we go back um, to how it got there. Think of the ending of some of your favorite movies. I jotted down just a list, and spoiler alert, if you, don't, if you plan on watching these, just plug your ears on the one I'm going to talk to uh, about. Um, Narnia. So the first Narnia films, we really loved the way they took C.S. Lewis books and turned them into a film. They did a really good job, in our opinion. And we watched the first Narnia, and at the end, you have the children who are now reigning kings and queens in this Narnia kingdom. And there's all this pageantry and all this joy and there's peace and there's, there's uh, harmony in the relationships. It's just this amazing thing. 
And to sort of catch the depth of all of that, you would need to go back to the beginning and see the journey that it took for them to get there. There's a really weird little offbeat uh, uh, film, but it has a lot of heart. It's called The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. And in The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, there's this ending scene, and it all centers around this one photograph. And when you see this end scene, it's really moving and really powerful to me. And I go, oh, that's so good. But the reason I would get chills and go, oh, I love how this ends, is because you would have to go back and track the whole story of Walter Mitty to figure out why that picture is so moving and so powerful. So you have your own. You have your own film where you go, man, this is such a good ending but you wouldn't really understand it if you didn't understand the highs and the lows that it took to get there. It's like the backstory clarifies the whole story. So we're going to spend a little bit of time, even though we're in Philippians, because we're going to be in Philippians for weeks to come. I want to go back to Acts 16, and I want to just show you some things on the backstory to appreciate what we're seeing in Philippians. Where do these partners in ministry come from? Again, I'm doing this with Paul because I want you to do this in your own life. I want you to say, where do, where have my deep friendships come from? Where have these partners in ministry that God, thank you, they didn't just materialize. It's good to go back and remember and think and talk about it. We know that Paul was called to go preach to Asia and so Paul obeyed. This is what Christians do. You hear from God and you do what he says. So he goes. But like every missions trip that has ever happened since, things didn't go quite as planned. You always plan a missions trip, and it never quite goes the way that it should. For years and years and years at this church, we partnered with an orphanage in Mexico. Every team we ever led down there, we said, um, Flexico is how we want you to think of Mexico from now on. Because you better be flexible on every single thing that happens with this trip. Don't take your Silicon Valley time frame and your Silicon Valley sort of uh, to-do list and tight, you know, tight sequential things that you're used to and don't impose them on what we'll be doing in Mexico. That's because missions trips are like that. Um, when I was bored as a kid, I would always look at the maps in the back of the Bible. And uh, it's pretty fascinating because this is, this is a map depicting um, his second missionary journey, Paul, Team Paul. And this is not how they drew it up. They did not draw it up this way. They drew it up some different way. But this, looking back, is how you can sort of track where they went. So in Acts 16, we see this. And here's the principle I want you to remember. We talked about this when we went through the book of Acts, but people talk about the call of God, the call of God. What I would say with the call of God is this. The call of God is not a one-time event. The call of God is an ongoing conversation. The call of God is not a one-time event. The call of God is an ongoing conversation. Paul was called by God to preach to those who hadn't heard yet. He felt specifically called to go preach in Asia. But on the way, God shuts the door multiple times. Remember I said that Philippi uh, Church was born out of closed doors and confusion? Here's what I mean. Look at verse 6 in 16. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach, to speak the word in Asia. That's a really wild sentence. Paul doesn't give us the details we long for. What does it mean to be forbidden by the Holy Spirit? Was he kept up in cold sweats at night? Was, you know, did his hand go to like, to the chariot or the horse or the path and try to walk and then he was like forced back? We don't know. He doesn't really tell us how the door was closed, but he just says, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So they pivot 
God must want them to head north and east instead. Verse 7, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So here again, we have this ongoing feeling our way forward. The call of God. Don't we want that to just be like very specific dates and packing lists and time frame? It's just not how God works. Call of God is an ongoing conversation, not a specific moment. That means it requires ongoing listening and testing. What is Paul doing? He's feeling his way forward. It was prevented here, so we're going to go over here. Here's where they end up. And we sort of covered this more in detail in... Oh, I get to use my laser pointer. It's so cool. All right. You guys probably can't even see that. But right up here, upper left of Asia is the city of Troas. Do you see that? Can you see my laser? You can't? Oh, it's pretty cool. Um, So right here... Right there. That's Troas. All right. Here's the point of Troas. If you follow this story, and I didn't get this until I was forced to have an assignment called Teach This in Church Every Sunday. So when you have, when you have a deadline of you have to study this stuff, you see stuff you would never see at a casual reading. But what God is doing is He's forcing them into this pinch point of Troas. He ends up at a lovely seaside town having tried to go in these other directions. Now stop and ponder just for a second. Team Paul could have done some different things. They could have questioned the call altogether and gone home. But they didn't do that. They could have questioned their faith and said, God, are you real? And abandoned their faith or wandered away from the faith. But they didn't do that. And here's maybe the third most powerful thing. They could have sulked and said, well, we thought we heard from God. But now we will just settle in this nice seaside town. But they didn't do any of those things. They didn't question the call. They didn't question their faith. They didn't just settle where they were and get comfortable. They kept seeking the Lord. And then here's what happens in verse 9. I'll just put it on the screen for you. This is so good. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately... We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I'll tell you how people try to sell this. People try to sell this that it's easy. You just get a dream from God. It's super clear, and you go and do it over and over and over again. Even with the great apostle Paul, there's a wrestling match. There's an ongoing testing and trusting, an ongoing leaning in. God, are you still here? Are you still meaning us for the do this? We're here in Troas. Are we supposed to go back? What are we supposed to be doing? And as they're seeking and pleading and fasting and praying and open to God's direction, it doesn't come on the first time. The Holy Spirit forbids over here. The Holy Spirit, uh, the Spirit of Jesus prevents over here. All of a sudden, a vision of a person from Macedonia. Where's Philippi located? In Macedonia. Modern day Greece. Come and help us. Paul goes, oh, I get it. Like, why was he able to jump in and do this so quickly? He realized the trip isn't done. It's just different. God, you're steering me a little bit different than what I thought. I had already mapped this out 10 steps ahead of you. You got me right where I needed to be. And now we just have a hop, skip and a jump over to Macedonia. Church, God might be redirecting you right now. He might have put something on your heart. You're like, I unmistakably know this is from the Lord. 
but he's redirecting you. Sometimes redirecting is wait. Wait, wait. That's what you do when you push a little thing. Wait. So you're sitting there waiting. Got him in Troas. What am I supposed to do? Just wait. When God redirects you, don't let it derail you. So many people go, maybe I heard from God wrong. Maybe God's not really even real. Maybe I just need to settle and get comfortable here and quit seeking the Lord because it's too confusing. And Paul's such a good example. There's so much joy, so much good that's waiting for him. So he gets there, and the church is formed by at least three encounters. Two of them, are, we're almost certain. The third, you have to read into it a little bit. But here's what I want to point out to you. In each of these encounters that we see in, Luke's, in, in Acts 16, we won't read them. I'll take them uh, very quickly for you through it. It'll kind of ring a bell to you. But in each of these, you have people who woke up one day not Christians, and they put their head on their pillow that night, and they were Christians. The same God who is freeing people from yesteryear is in the business of freeing people today. The same people who were spiritually dead and woke up one day spiritually dead and went to bed spiritually awake and alive forevermore is doing it today. So church, like just let this sink deep inside of you. God, you're on the move right now in the people in, in, in my life and around me. Let me show you very quickly. Lydia. Lydia is a God-fearing businesswoman. She evidently was good at finance and fashion. And the way this church starts is atypical because Paul goes in, tries to find a synagogue. A synagogue had to have at least 10 men. Evidently in Philippi, there weren't 10 men to form a synagogue. So Paul goes to plan B, and there's some women praying down by the river. Paul goes and joins them and teaches the Bible to them. And these God-fearing women, Lydia among them, become the very first converts in Europe. Where does the church at Philippi meet? At Lydia's house. She must be a woman of means. That's why I say she's good at finance. She knows how to handle her money well, and she's good at fashion because she made a lot of money doing it. So the very first church, think of all the famous cathedrals in Europe. I think one of the most beautiful homes, churches in all of Europe is Lydia's house. Man, what a powerful thing. So Lydia becomes this ministry partner. She believes the gospel and is baptized. Take you to a second person. A girl is oppressed in slavery. She has a demonic spirit of divination. In other words, it's able to tell the future and say things about people. And men own this girl. And men are making large sums of money because of her prophetic ways, powered by demons. And Paul comes along, and what does Paul do? He casts out the name, he casts out the demon in the name of Jesus, and the owners are ticked off, and they get Paul and Silas thrown in jail. Third encounter, they're in jail. A jailer comes to work that day, just a blue-collar dude showing up for work. A day just like any other, I'm going to work the jail, do my thing. You guys know the story, Acts 16. Paul and Silas are singing in jail. It's around midnight. Don't just read past that. They are singing in jail. Worship service is kind of easy in here. Temperature okay this morning? We good? Chair to your liking? Not too hard, not too soft, right? Man, it's, it's easy to worship God and praise God in here. They're in jail. They're just having this worship service. 
God sends an earthquake. They have their ticket out to freedom right there. They choose not to take it. And they communicate to this jailer, we're still here. Spare your life. You've done your job. This isn't on you. And this jailer leads his family in putting their trust in Jesus Christ and having their life completely transformed. Not only is his life spared, his eternal life is spared. Man, it's so good to see these stories. This is the start of the church. Do you see the diversity of people that formed the early believers at Philippi? Do you see the diversity of rescue? No one's story is quite the same. That's why we can't really package and manufacture discipleship and evangelism the way that we would sort of like to here in the Silicon Valley. It just doesn't work that way. So about 10 years have passed since these events, and he's writing back to them about that time. Gospel partnerships are formed by God and by God's people walking in God's ways. And he does it in a variety of ways. We're going to learn more about this as we go. But more than any other church that Paul was in partnership with, think of all the ministry partners that Paul had on his deathbed. He just looks back on this long list of people. Uniquely, this church... This group of believers in Philippi and Macedonia offered Paul financial support for his ministry. Look at 2 Corinthians verse 8. It says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, he's talking financially here, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. God loves a cheerful, willing giver. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Look at verse 5. And this, not not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. What a beautiful picture of sacrificial giving in some very tangible ways. Financial help is tangible. It's tangible to give it to Paul and support the work he's doing. It's tangible on the other end. Hey, we love you and churches love you and Christians love you. And here's a gift, a financial gift to help you out of your your struggle right now. But he's calling out something. He says more than just the finances, though, which says a lot. Says where your heart is at. You gave yourself to us. And this is how Paul tried to minister in return. So NBC, there's joy in gospel partnerships. I want to show you something that I haven't shown in a little while, but this is a play button. It's a big idea around here that sort of talks about um, not just a vision for all Christians, but this shows process. This shows the process that God takes people on in being made into a disciple. As a church, we must be investing intentionally. Oh, laser again. I love it. We must be intentionally. You just can't see that. Uh, See the word community. We must be investing intentionally around those who are already in the family of God. That means we are putting resources and prayer and time and energy and thought and dreaming and correcting to the household of God. We are called to be tending to one another. And this isn't my job and Andres' job and the elders. This is a church job. We are to build ourselves up in love. I told you at the start of January, one of the reasons I'm encouraged to be your pastor here, one of the pastors here, is because so much of this goes on already. 
brings me great joy when I come alongside and join other Christians doing the work of shepherding one another, of just caring for one another. So we, we need to be invested. But think about this. Every ministry partner right now that you go, man, there's years of ministry. I see Mindy and Hemick over here. Mindy and I have been ministry partners for a couple decades now, a long time. And I can't tell you, it's just joy. I mean, I'm up here, I'm, I see Mindy, I'm like, man, there's just such long-term ministry partnership. Every ministry partner you can think of right now that you just go, God, thank you so much for this person. I can't believe I get to be in a relationship with them. Every one of them didn't begin that way. They started in some other way. And here's what I want you to see is that while it's important to invest in the family, in the community, you don't get ministry partners without the idea of share. The word share around here means two very specific things. It means evangelism, which is just the summary of, of Acts is Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses. Here, here, and here, just around the whole world. You know what the kids are learning this morning? The kids are learning this simple message this morning, that every one of them is, has a mission, that in Jesus Christ we're called to something. We have an activity. We're ambassadors. So they're learning about that right now. We want to instill that from, from day one. So evangelism is one, but just like we just read, it's not just sharing the good news. It is sharing your life and your stuff and your calendar and your minivan and your wallet and your food and your clothing and your vacations and your church. It's sharing all of these things and giving it away. Let me just point out three things. Think about Lydia for a second. NBC. I want us as a church, how do we continue to lean in to bringing Bible studies to places uh, of, of worship that aren't inside the church? Down by the river was a place of worship. They didn't know it yet, but their lives were about to be transformed as the Bible was taught to them, and they heard a clear message of the gospel, and they were transformed by that. Jim works in a firehouse, and for years we just get to hear different things about, uh, Jim, in fact, you're really good at this, not just in the firehouse, but how do we just get little Bible studies going? I love bumping into Christians. I see Christians at Starbucks and Pete's sometimes, and Jim carries a giant Bible. You can't mistake it. I'm kind of incognito. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but I might be doing this. Not so with Jim. You see, it's a Bible study. We're taking the Bible to Starbucks, right? Let them pay the finances on that building. So how do we do that? Man, there's campus clubs going on. Santa Teresa High School has a Christian club. Pioneer High School has a Christian club. Reed Elementary is beginning to develop a Christian club. Pray for these. Support these. Find students who are doing them and encourage them. Say, man, we're with you in prayer. We're so excited that the Bible's being taught elsewhere. Future Lydia's. Future ministry partners like Lydia are coming from those. Here's the second one. Think about this slave girl. Man, this slave girl sounds a lot like child pornography. It just sounds like pornography in general. That there are wicked men and wicked people, probably mostly men, benefiting and making money off of enslaved people. One of the most horrific slap stats and one of the things that keeps me so involved in foster care is a large percentage of those who've been sex trafficked here and around the world, but think about here specifically, where have spent time in the foster care system. Why is that? It's because there aren't adults in that child's life saying, if this child were ever to get taken from me or go missing, I would not stop until I found them. I would pursue them to the ends of the earth. I would drain every resource I have to go and fight for this kid. Foster care 
is one of the ways God transforms lives from slavery, physical and spiritual, into freedom, physical and spiritual. Church, we have families in our midst right now who have and are doing this act of mercy, and it's one of many. When you give your life in a way that just says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you in and free you. We have men, uh, young future men and future women next door who are coming to this church and showing up. And as we invest in them, as we give acts of mercy, we are preaching the gospel. They're future gospel partners. Let me give you one more. The jailer and his family. How, how was he saved? He was saved in this way. He saw some people that valued Jesus Christ and his life as more important than their freedom and comfort. That's so instructive. Do people around you know you that, that the way you handle trials, the way that you handle things, is that you praise God no matter what, even when you're in jail? And when you actually have this, this path out to just make it easier and better for yourself, Do you live in such a way that you so treasure Jesus Christ and what he's doing on the planet, which is to be a witness and to make disciples, that you actually choose to disadvantage yourself to advantage a blue-collar worker who came to work that day and worked the jails? And that's so powerful. This is the early church at Philippi. So NBC, how do we value Jesus And just keep stirring up what we're doing here and keeping the day of the Lord in our mind so that we live in such a way that future ministry partners would come from here. So don't miss that intentional investment. Let me show you one more intentional investment. That is that not only should we intentionally invest in people who aren't here yet, but we should intentionally invest in people who are here. Lucas made comment about the dudes night that happened, Friday night and Saturday night. You would not have recognized this place. A ton of hard work, a ton of investment in heart, soul, mind, and strength went into our young men at this church. And you know what this event was about? This event was about the core community. Many youth events will say, hey, invite your friends, and we put out a bunch of flyers, and we blanket the the thing, and we say, hey, let's get everyone here. That's a share event. That's really important. But this event very specifically was this. He had this theme of saying, man up. So there was some Bible study that went on. There was some prayer time that went on. There was a message that went out to our junior high and high school students that said, here's what it means to be a godly man. And by the way, we're going to have a ton of fun doing it. And this isn't an event for them. This is an event for you. We're going to build into you and invest in you. Josh, raise your hand for one second. Lucas, raise your hand for one second. You want to know how to pray? Have them find rest in the next 48 hours because they're still depleted and sort of like on the low from, from this from this night. I know from my own kid, there wasn't a lot of sleep that happened. That wasn't the point. Let me give you two more examples. Rich, would you come up here? Uh, I want Rich to tell you about something uh, that's going on. Every time you're meeting in a community group, you are developing and growing ministry partnerships. Simply by being here, that's a part of what's going on. It's happening in sort of this small, unseen way. Um, Rich has a community group that meets on Sunday mornings, and um, I just want you to share about, about that. Yeah, so um, we're doing a, a study uh, called The Good and Beautiful Life. It's uh, part of a curriculum for Christ-likeness. And the whole idea is if you want to end up more like Jesus at the end of 2024 than you are now, something ha- has to happen. You can't just watch Netflix, right? You've got to do something. And three things that need to happen. Num- number one is you've got to know some things. Particularly, you've got to know more accurate things about God. 
secondly, you got to do some things, and that uh, that tends to be spiritual practices. So, for instance, one of the uh, it's a it's a study on the Sermon on the Mount and the practices that Jesus says, the life that Jesus says that Christians should live. Uh, one of the practices is how to live without worry. Uh, well, the practice is how to do anxiety-busting prayer rather than anxiety-enhancing prayer, mm. right? I've done anxiety-enhancing prayer, mm-hmm. but this is anxiety-busting prayer. So that's a spiritual practice that you're going to do during the week, and then we're going to come back and talk about it the next week. So each week has a spiritual practice that ties in with the, uh, the theme. We're, having, uh, we're starting two weeks from today, but this morning at 1045, if you go down that hall all the way to the back, right before you get to the backyard, there's actually a room back there. And that's where we're going to meet at uh, 1045 as an interest meeting to find out more about it. So I encourage you to come. Thank you, Rich. Yeah, I encourage you to check that out. And again, I've said this from this place, but Rich is a dynamite person to be uh, leading this class. Um, just really incredible because, Rich, you've practiced this and you've, you see the benefits of it and you're walking in it. So I appreciate that about you. Uh, listen, one more thing. You're going to hear more about this in the weeks ahead, but... Um, we have different times of retreat and camps. Those are, those are times where we're investing often in people who are already here. And we have a women's retreat. I think we should call it a women's regroup once in a while. Somebody just need to regroup. And uh, we just had a men's one in the fall. And there's another one coming up. And so you're going to hear more about that. But these are opportunities to grow in ministry partners. One last word before I move on to point three and four. Very quickly, like I promised, is this. If you are married today, your most important ministry partner is the one who gave you your ring. Your spouse and investing in that partnership is vital. I can't tell you the, the trickle-down effect, sort of the, the cause and effect um, of, of kingdom gospel good that comes from a growing healthy, and whole marriage. If you are at this church, you're going to get sick of hearing about this. And if you're struggling in your marriage and it's hard to hear these kind of words, just brace for hard. We talk a lot about this. Because one of the ways that pastors fail is they go off and win the world and they lose their spouse. They lose their family. They have that all completely wrong. God wants all ministry, actually, all joy, actually, to come out from his, our relationship with him first, and then our very closest neighbor who we're loving as ourselves. Who's our closest neighbor? It's our spouse. Who's our closest ministry partner that we should invest in and be grateful for and pour into and pray these things that Paul's, it's our spouse. So, man, I just I can't stress that enough. Kingdom good um, and world good comes from tending first and most, to your marriage. All right, I promised I'd be quick. Here's the next two. Uh, Oceans of joy uh, are found in God's promise. Verse 6 is so powerful. And I'm sure of this, he says. Where's Paul's joy come from? It comes from certainty. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. It's not just that salvation brings joy, but salvation that is secure brings joy. Knowing that my own activities can't change this, your activities can't change this. The Christian faith is not found in just words of Jesus. It's on an event that occurred and can't be changed. It's good news that we proclaim and preach first to ourselves. 
Surely you've gotten an incomplete on an assignment. Maybe you took an incomplete in class. Kids, once you get to college, you get to just do an incomplete. Some people major in incomplete. They just keep taking classes, starting them, and they're like, yep, I'm not going to complete that one. You know what's amazing? You think back, like, why, why did you take it incomplete? Maybe you got bored. Maybe you just got too hard. Maybe it was, like, just too length of time. Maybe something changed in yourself, circumstances. God never gets bored working on you. God never loses interest. He doesn't get distracted. Things don't get too hard for God in his work on you. He doesn't throw up his hands and go, well, let's just start over. He doesn't chuck the Gouldings like I was trying to do. He restores. He keeps them. Grows them. He's not just the promise-making God. He's the promise-keeping God. There's a really powerful phrase in the Scriptures that you'll see if you just study the Scriptures. It's when God is making promises to your children's children. How sovereign do you have to be to be able to make a promise 150 years out right now? You've got to be in control of a lot of things. God does it. And we just sang this. He's never failed me once. So a God who can make promises to your children's children, to the third and fourth generation is how that phrase often completes. That's the God that we have our hands in. There's joy here, friends, to grab hold of and walk in. There's a funny phrase right now which says this, you've got this. Or you'll say to someone, I got you. But do you really? Do they really have this? Sometimes we say this just to sort of puff people up. You ever go back and check your track record? You said, I got you. Did you? Did you come through on your promise? What did that even mean? When you said, you got this, Dave, you got this. Woohoo! Did he? I mean, did he really have this? Or was that just something we sort of throw around? I've been sitting with this phrase today, that God's grip on us is what we know for sure. Our grip on God may fail, but his never will. Aren't you thankful your salvation isn't for how, how carefully and how consistently you cling to God? It's not based on my grip. It's based on his grip of me. And that is just transformative in how we think. Rest in this truth. Find joy in this truth. Last one is this. Joy is found in partaking together. Partaking just means to participate or to share. We use this word around here during communion. Let's partake in communion. Partake is a word that we are sharing together in a common meal. We're sharing together to remember the Lord Jesus Christ and his body and his blood. He says in verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are partakers with me of grace. Listen how he clarifies that. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The joy of rich relationship and deep, godly, appropriate affection is not attained with ease. When we hear that we're partakers of grace, we all go, woohoo! We talk about imprisonments and defense of the gospel and confirmation of the gospel. How is the gospel confirmed? Often through hardship. Man, this person believes in something like a God who's out to save jailers such that he'll stay in jail, give his life away, his freedom away, his comfort away for someone else. 
our group on Wednesday night, we just call ourselves the grace group. You know why we call ourselves the grace group? Because we know we're going to need it. Every single week, without fail, we need grace. So we just say, hey, if it's last minute, Elizabeth, and you can't make it, text us, and we'll just pray for you. We'll try not to get rid of you. I'm milking that text a lot. Um, but we call ourselves the grace group. My text, I just, it's just called grace group. I love it. It just keeps on the forefront. What we're even doing here is not duty. It's not chore. We're not earning anything. Just grace upon grace upon grace. We're going to receive it. We're going to give it freely away. We're going to live by it. We are partakers in grace. And part of what we share in church, part of what we are called to share in, is the things Jesus promised us. The way is narrow and few ever find it. That means you will be at odds with many, many, many people who will think you're crazy for walking this Jesus way. He promised that if you want to live godly in this life, you will be persecuted. Imprisonments. Defense of the gospel means you'll get into awkward spiritual conversations. To be a witness for Jesus means not just to live a certain way, but to open your mouth and trust that there's power in the message of the gospel and not to be ashamed of it, knowing it's the power of God into salvation. Shows how much we need each other. There's a, there's a depth of this that happens when this goes on year after year. Big idea today, joy is just closer than you think. And to remember and think on these things is this. Uh, there's so many foolish things. There's so many childish things that people go to looking for joy. And it's not there. It'll never be found there. And we need to remind our own hearts. God, keep my mind focused on the day of the Lord. Keep my mind on the, on the big picture. I'm your witness around the world today, right where I live. Van, why don't you guys come on up? An action item I just want to pass on to you that I've been engaged in. One is this. Spend time reflecting on people who helped you get to where you are. There's so much joy just in thinking about how did, how did I get here? The start of this church came from great sacrifice from Valley Church in Cupertino. People you've never met. People who are dead and gone now. They're in glory and they helped get this church started. So stopping remembering. There's so much joy in that. Spend time praying for them. You want to know what to pray? Look at verses 9 to 11. Just start there. Pray what Paul prays for these people. It's an amazing guide. So pray for these ministry partners. How about this? Invest some time letting them know how grateful you are for them. I've spent some time this week just texting and making some phone calls. And finally, look around to the present and say, God, where's my next ministry partner coming from? Lord, thank you so much for this church. God, I thank you for the people in this church, actual real people. Lord, that we, we let each other down. We're imperfect. We don't have an up and to the right portfolio spiritually, God. We just sometimes feel like we should know stuff by now. But here we are again. And Lord, faithfully, week after week, I have ministry partners, even in what goes on right now with microphones and YouTube videos and musicians and uh, people who clean carpets and invest, Lord. we just so grateful. God, I pray that you would help us to take hold of and to walk in the joy that is ours in you. Amen.